a trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, once again, I'd like to welcome you to the show. This is especially true for those of you who are checking it out for the first time. Like I tell my friends, if I know you're listening, I'm going to put some effort into the show, not just phone it in like I usually do. I kid. I kid. But I am gl- I'm grateful that you found us for whatever reason, and, and I guess I should tell you right up front, what the message I have to share is not for everyone. And it's not because I'm trying to keep it exclusive and it's only for members of the Cool Kids Club and, you know, you got to prove yourself that you're one of the cool kids. No, it's it's nothing that uh, that simple or that, uh, that complicated even for that matter. Uh, this is just a message that uh, not a lot of people want to hear. So if you're one of the few people who has has found that uh, you're you're struggling to find good credible information that's based in principle and not just, you know, partisan bickering that consists of a little bit more than uh, sensationalized, you know, conspiracies and and uh, shouted bumper sticker slogans, I think you'll find what what we have to offer here um hopefully useful. That's up, that's up to you to decide. I, I won't twist your arm, but I am grateful that you're part of my audience. want to thank my sponsors, Alta Bank, also Landmark Risk Management and Insurance, and Monticello College. They are wonderful sponsors. You'll find information about them in the show notes, which you'll find posted every day at thebrianhydeshow.com. Let's dive in, shall we? One of the most fascinating developments that uh, that I'm seeing going on around us, and, and maybe to fully appreciate this, you really should dust off your copy of 1984, or Animal Farm for that matter, by George Orwell. Either one of those books would go a long ways towards helping you see what Orwellian times we live in. In particular, there's, there's this, uh, well, I'll just put it this way. We have modern day ministries of truth. And if, if you're not familiar with this, again, you really should just gra- either rent rent a copy or or find a, find the movie version of 1984. The book is much, much better. And it goes into far more detail, but there is, there is such a, a concerted effort to make sure that, you know, there's no past, there's no future, there is only a present in which the party is always right. And that means that inconvenient truths have to disappear down the memory hole. And the great lie is that everybody has to believe what is coming from the ministry of truth. We've always been at war with East Asia. We have always been at war with Eurasia. If you haven't read the story, this is going right over your head. But very worth your while. Here's the the kicker, though. The shift that's taking place right before our eyes right now is uh, mass deception on a scale that, that's unprecedented. In fact, we're going to talk a little bit later on in the program about how uh, the mainstream media, our mass media, 
has really gone all in uh, to promote a massive lie about a so-called white supremacist insurrection that took place on January 6th. Even foreign media, even you know more independent sources like Russia Today, have started repeating this, this catchphrase. It's interesting, and it's extremely disturbing. There's a great article from Anders Koskinen. I saw this published on intellectualtakeout.org. No, limited government is not reckless radicalism. And I thought this would be a pretty good place to start. To just kind of point out some of the places where we, we are being massaged. We're, we're not yet being marched at bayonet point to, you know, you have to accept this. You have to chant this. Everybody, you know, chant in unison. But we're certainly moving in a direction where that's, <laughs> that's probably not as far off as any of us would think. Anders Koskinen says, with Inauguration Day behind us, ink spilled on politics is being diverted from Donald Trump and the transition of power to Joe Biden and the exercise of power. One such piece by Jeffrey D. Sachs over at CNN takes a rather disingenuous approach to this theme, calling a small government approach, quote, reckless radicalism. Rather than discussing Biden's path to citizenship for illegal immigrants or $1.9 trillion stimulus proposal, Sachs breaks down what his headline calls Biden's Ronald Reagan problem. Quote, President-elect Joe Biden is inheriting a national crisis that is built up over 40 years. On January 20th, 1981, former President Ronald Reagan took the U.S. on a radical course when he declared in his inaugural address... In the present crisis, government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. He set out to weaken the federal government by slashing taxes on the rich, dismantling regulations, cutting back on public programs, and turning many of the nation's problems back to the states. End quote. Now, Sachs goes on to accuse Trump of operating in the same vein as the Gipper by passing massive tax cuts in 2017, And then when calamity hit with COVID-19 in 2020, placing the burden of response on the states. Now, Anders Koskinen says what Sachs deems reckless radicalism is a small government approach that honors the Tenth Amendment and federalism and which allows the free enterprise system to function. But this is the problem of our contemporary political discourse, he says. Positions held by most Americans up until a few years ago now displease Sachs and other intellectuals as radical. Our First Amendment rights are trampled if we are told that it saves us from COVID, and our Second Amendment rights have long been under assault. The Tenth Amendment and its reservation of powers to the states, what we know as federalism, are oft ignored by the federal government. Sachs' piece continues the tradition of attempting to delegitimize the federalist system by pointing out that southern states resisted the civil rights movement. But he doesn't stop there. Sachs argues that since the white working-class voters of the South shifted to voting for Nixon, Reagan, and other Republicans after federal intervention in the civil rights movement, promises to cut back the enforcement powers of the federal government and stop federal programs on jobs, housing, and community development, which he says constitute an enabling of segregation. Wow, hyperbole much? Yet reducing the power of the federal government is not a black and white issue. It's a constitutional one, which Sachs refuses to acknowledge in any part of his article for CNN. 
But Anders Koskinen says perhaps we shouldn't be surprised. After all, Sachs contributes, uh, rather attributes Nixon's 1968 victory to the Southern strategy, despite the fact that of the 11 former Confederate states, five went to George Wallace. Virginia was split between Nixon and Wallace, and the biggest electoral prize, Texas, went to Hubert Humphrey. Sachs also attributes Reagan's victory to the Southern strategy, despite the fact that he won 44 states in 1980 and 49 states in 1984. So when someone's ignorant of history, it's likely unfair to expect him to appreciate the nuances and benefits of a federalist system in which power is shared between distinct levels of government. Now, Anders Koskinen says Trump had no right and little constitutional power to enforce a nationwide response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Besides, what's good for New York City is not the same as what's good for Billings, Montana, and what works in Billings or New York may not be good for Dallas, Texas. It is contradictory, but not surprising that members of the liberal elite decried Trump as a dictator while demanding that he act like one. The question for them was not one of whether absolute power is a good or bad thing, but merely how much that power should be exercised. Sachs goes on to decry tax cuts that are not accompanied by equal or greater cuts in federal spending, and in this he says he's quite right. However, the problem is not in the tax cuts, but in the ever-growing Leviathan that is a federal government constantly trying to play God. In the 35 years from 1940 through 1974, the federal government saw receipts totaling $3.3 trillion. That total was topped by 2019 alone. In the same time frame, the United States accumulated a total debt of $321.8 billion. In 2019, the budget deficit was $984.2 billion, despite the highest ever total receipts by the federal government. That deficit is more than the federal government took in from 1789 through 1957. Wow, that is stunning. And by the way, those numbers are inflation adjusted to $2012, and the data is easily and publicly available from the White House Office of Budget and Management in Table 1.3. We'll come back to this in just a few moments. But isn't it interesting? I mean, the the whole system that came before us right now, we're being told, is something dangerous, radical. In fact, freedom itself is seen as a very radical thing. I'm sure Orwell is sitting back going, wow, these guys took it even farther than I was willing to take it in my novels. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. I encourage you each and every episode, please check out the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. And that's because uh, not only will I have links to some of the excellent commentaries and stories that I'm sharing with you, but you'll also find resources for wrong thinkers. Yes, I I try to make it as, as easy as possible for members of my audience to access different news aggregators, different uh, news feeds that I have found uh, useful. By the way, I'm always open. I'm always looking for other uh, information sources 
that do less to spin the news for me and do a better job of just presenting facts where I can make up my own mind. I know it's a lot to ask in this day and age, but I don't really want to, you know, I don't want the news media barfing up whatever sound bites, you know, pre-digested into my mouth like I'm a baby bird. I'm sorry, that's a horrible graphic. And if you're eating, you know, right now, I, I apologize. But but really, there are a lot of people who sit there with their, their you know, mouth open and their neck outstretched. <laughs> you know, come on, feed me. Tell me what I'm supposed to think. Tell me what I'm supposed to feel. That's not what we do here. I'll definitely give you, uh, you know, some information to consider, things you can think about, things that you can weigh on your own, and then it's up to you to decide. Do I accept this or not? Do I assimilate this into my life? Does it ring true? Is it something I'm going to share with others? You know, that's, that is your call to make. That, uh, that freedom to think for yourself is something far too sacred for me to take, uh, you know, well, I'll tell you what to think. Just pull up a chair and set your mind over there and I'll tell you exactly what to think. I want to come back here and just briefly finish up this uh, commentary from Anders Koskinen published on intellectualtakeout.org. This is uh, about uh, limited government is not reckless radicalism, even though there are some who are trying to portray it as this and trying to save us from that reckless radicalism by, uh, well, essentially creating unlimited government. He says the United States was still a thriving, growing country in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, despite the federal government not holding every citizen's hand from the cradle to the grave. We engaged in numerous overseas military conflicts prior to 1974 as well, so it can't be the war on terror that bankrupted this country. He says, Our present fiscal and political instability has not resulted from tax cuts or the Federalist system. It has come from the handouts based on political grandstanding. And it's also been affected by the inflammatory rhetoric issuing from this reporter at CNN, Mr. Sachs, and others who smear anyone who does not rally to the newest woke government program as a reckless radical. Again, I'll have a link to this in the show notes. Strongly, strongly recommend that you take a look at it. One of the questions that has crossed my mind of late is the idea of how did we get to this point? And it's, you know, I'm not trying to make anybody feel guilty, so, you know, please, this is not my finger pointing at you. How, did, how could you do this? How could you let this happen? Um, no, I got to look at myself, too, because I'm pretty sure that, uh, that I bear responsibility just like everybody else. But, you know, I remember as a kid, actually, I remember rolling my eyes when my parents would try to explain to me, this is, this is why liberty matters. This is why the Constitution matters. This is why limited government matters. Now, I'll tell you right up front, my parents were never as libertarian as I've become, you know, over, over my, uh, my years. But they definitely believed in the, the prospect of limited government and self-governance on the part of the people. So how did we get to the point now where we have um, unlimited government, or at least people who are advocating for unlimited government in every area of our lives? It's... It's scary, and at the same time, it's, it's, uh, it's a fascinating study in what makes us go that direction. Richard M. Ebling, writing for the Future of Freedom Foundation, FFF.org, has an excellent commentary about how collectivism 
breeds indifference to the loss of liberty. I won't read the whole thing for you. It's a, it's a pretty lengthy article, but I have a couple of, uh, just a couple of excerpts from this that, uh, that I really think are, are useful in understanding what's going on around us. Richard Ebling starts by asking, who does not want to make the world a better place? With so much sorrow and suffering, poverty and plunder, cynicism and corruption in far too many places, nearly everyone, if asked, <clears throat> will usually say that if he could just, that, it, that if he could, he would try to make this shared planet of ours a safer, prettier, more prosperous, and less unjust shared domicile on which we all live. The problem is, what's the best means to that end? And the answer to that question, he says, has plagued mankind for a very long time. It goes back to the ancients. With all the nuances and distinctions that have been discussed and debated, he says, I would suggest that it all comes down to a decision between force and freedom. For most of human history, the implied or articulated presumption has been that human beings left to their own personal devices will bring about a world of cruelty, injustice, and societal harm. In other words, human beings in general need someone or something to control and command them, to restrain their harmful proclivities and direct them into the ways of living and interacting that ensures degrees of harmony and fairness in the relationships between them. Conquerors and kings, as well as democratically elected politicians or populist demagogues hungry only for power, have all insisted that they want authority over others for the good of those over whom they wish to assert and impose their rule. Sound familiar? <laughs> Richard Ebling says whether it's just rhetorical concealments to cover the desire simply for power and privileges over others, or whether some of those or some or many of those proposing planned societies have done it or do it out of a sincere belief that they know better how human beings should live their lives and interactively associate with their human beings. The end result, though, is the same. The latitude and liberty of the individual person is narrowed to various degrees by political constraints of one type or another that limit his options and opportunities to more fully choose his own ends and utilize various means that he considers to be most likely to successfully achieve the goals he has in mind. Any of that ring a bell? You know, history has, has left us some really interesting things to study. In fact, uh, Richard Ebling points out the extreme instances of such planned societies were experienced over the last 100 years in the form of the Nazi and Soviet totalitarian systems. Little was left out of the control, command, and central direction of these collectivist regimes. They were determined on the basis of their respective ideologies of either class or race conflict to remake the entire world in their own images. Human life has neither meaning nor value outside of service to the cause nor independently of it. He shares the example of American news correspondent Eugene Lyons, who was in the Soviet Union from 1928 to 1934. Assignment in Utopia. He explains when he first arrived in Moscow, he was full of sympathy for the idea of the great experiment in making a new socialist society. Yes, the communists were a one-party dictatorship, but he accepted the notion that sometimes a dictatorship might be necessary and acceptable if a higher good came out of it all, at least in the long run. But after finishing his tour in Moscow for the United Press News Agency, he traveled extensively in fascist Italy and Nazi Germany before returning to the U.S. 
He watched and listened carefully to what was going on in these other countries and concluded the following. Quote, we had gone to Russia believing there were good dictatorships and bad. We left convinced that defending one dictatorship is in fact defending the principle of tyranny. The European journey strengthened that conviction. The common denominator in all that we saw, it seemed to me, was the decadence of the moral sense in mankind, the attrition of ethical values. That decadence showed itself in an indifference to suffering and callous disrespect for the stuff of life. The moral collapse of Europe, he says, was far more terrible than its economic collapse. I will have a link to this, uh, to this article in the show notes. And I strongly recommend you find some time to, to take a look at it. Richard Ebling has uh, some deep reservoirs of knowledge from which to draw. And he really provides an excellent historical perspective. You may still disagree, but you'll be better informed even if you do disagree. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Hey, our program is brought to you in part by Alta Bank. That would be my friend John Staples. He is a mortgage lender with Alta Bank, and interest rates are ridiculously low right now. If that's something that you are looking at saying, you know, we've been thinking about refinancing our existing home mortgage, or maybe you're looking for a new home. A lot of folks are, uh, you know, moving out of, uh, you know, the more authoritarian regimes across the country, and coming to my home state of Utah, well, if that's the case, contact my friend John at Alta Bank. The contact information is right there in the show notes at the bottom of the, the page. You'll see sponsor links. Click on Alta Bank. Tell John thank you for sponsoring this show. Hey, just a couple quick thoughts here. I, I Again, I, I shared with you an excerpt from Richard M. Ebling's article, Collectivism Breeds Indifference to the loss of liberty. And I wanted to take just a moment here to talk about how you desensitize people to the loss of their liberty. He says what's significant in in tackling in, in embracing rather a, a mild version of a planned economy is how it uh, desensitizes to government abridgment of people's liberty and property. And he's given some historical perspective here, talking about the New Deal and nullifying the individual in service to a higher collective cause, which, by the way, we're seeing a lot of that right now under the, uh, you know, the premise that, well, for COVID, we all have to give up, you know, our individuality and, you know, behave as, as a collective. Well, over time, he says, there was now the explicit and constant presumption that it was the duty and responsibility of government to interfere or to intervene, rather, sorry, same difference in some cases, into the market of market affairs of ordinary citizens. It was increasingly taken for granted that government had the right and responsibility to restrict or prohibit those voluntary trades and associations that in an earlier era were considered the natural and sovereign activities for individual persons to enter into without worrying that political power would preempt their own decisions and peaceful interactions with others. When the 20th century began, he says there were very few in America who considered it the role and responsibility of government to guarantee jobs, supply subsidized housing, set wages and prices, or redistribute income and wealth 
on the basis of a political paternalism, ensuring a more just income equality among the people of the country. Today, he asks, how many Americans ever think about ending or even just radically reducing any such interventionist welfare state programs? And the answer is virtually none. Advocates for real human liberty are very, very few and far between. And private property rights? They practically don't exist. If one means by economic liberty an unrestricted right to buy and use and sell private property as desired on the basis of voluntary, honest, and peaceful consent. I don't know if you remember the video a few months ago. It's on YouTube. showed a young woman being arrested, handcuffed, and dragged away from an open-air grandstand at some school sports event where fans were distanced from each other. What was her crime? She wasn't wearing a face mask. What was the reaction of the spectators sitting on the bleachers as she shouted her innocence of not having done anything wrong and asking for help? This is, by the way, as a big old cop is rolling her up. You know what the reaction was? Nothing. Just quiet, passive indifference to what was happening to the young lady. And seemingly, everyone was focused instead on the players and the play on the field. Much less uh, disturbing to watch than a lady getting rolled up and arrested because she didn't have her mask on. And this is going to sting. But Richard Ebling reminds us in Nazi Germany, people looked away or cheered when Jews were beaten up on the street or rounded up and sent off to concentration and death camps. In the Soviet Union, people would quietly sit in their apartments and or verbally support the secret police when some neighbor was arrested and removed from his dwelling, usually in the middle of the night, never to be seen again. So, on the YouTube video of the young lady being forcefully removed at a sporting event, not only did everyone sitting there just ignore what was happening to her, no one seemed to object or say he was sorry. Now, that's not to equate removing someone from an American sporting event in 2020 for not wearing a face mask with the humiliation, abuse, and brutality that German Jews suffered at the hands of the Nazis in the 1930s. But Richard Ebeling says it says something about the indifference and disregard for another person's freedom in contemporary America. I think that line, more than anything, punched me right in the stomach. How jealous are you for your own liberty and for that of others? He's got a great quote here from Herbert Spencer, who if, you have, if you're not familiar with his work, this is somebody um, who had some very relevant thoughts on the concept of freedom. And uh, Herbert Spencer said to an American newsman back in 1882, the fact is that free institutions can be properly worked only by men, each of whom is jealous of his own rights and is also sympathetically jealous of the rights of others. Will neither himself aggress on his neighbors in small things or great, nor tolerate aggression on them by others. Now, in the 1880s, Richard Ebling points out a lot of Americans would have agreed with Spencer, even though they may not have fully or consistently practiced it. But many at that time would have said, no doubt, they shared the idea and the sentiment in Herbert Spencer's words, even if they didn't practice it always in their own lives. So it's, it's easy to be pessimistic right now, especially if you are a friend of freedom. <clears throat> you see what's going on. You see the totalitarian trends taking place in American society. 
especially among cancel culture and identity politics warriors with their ideological certainty and their self-righteous determination to destroy property, burn down neighborhoods, beat up, even kill gender, race, and class enemies. Richard Ebling says, I've written a number of times against pessimism among friends of freedom, regardless of how far gone and hopeless the current circumstances seem to be. He says, the fact is, trends that seem to be irreversible have been halted or been reversed in history, and that includes our own times. Just as a quick aside, I have seen a number of people extremely concerned here in the last week or so. I guess it hasn't even been a full week yet, right? For uh, for Joe Biden as president. He's only been president for five days. But the amount of executive orders and reversals of policies that were enacted under the Trump administration, I mean, it's... It, it, there, there's almost a kind of madness in how we must undo it all. We must undo everything. Abortion is now mandatory. I mean, it's 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 crazy, the overreaction and the hard swing. And and while it's disturbing to me to think, wow, you know, the, this is uh, this is a hard clampdown and a hard uh, consolidation of power. I also take comfort in something here that uh, that Richard Ebling is pointing out. And that is that, uh, you know, trends that seem to be irreversible have been halted or have been reversed. And sometimes it helps to even remind yourself that things that go up quickly tend to come down rather quickly as well. What's needed more than ever, though, he says, is the character, confidence, and courage to defend liberty in all of its facets, whether it's political liberty, economic liberty, or social liberty. Otherwise, he says, the idea and ideal of American liberty might very well be lost. Now, I can only speak for myself. But as long as there is breath in my lungs, as long as I have a voice to speak, um, I will be a defender of liberty. And I'm certainly not alone. I suspect there are people within the sound of my voice right now who, who feel the same way. In fact, if we can be really honest about it, there are a lot of people, I'm sure, within the sound of my voice who feel not just a, you know, an inclination like, yeah, liberty's a good idea. I could get behind that. But they actually feel almost a calling. Like they have a duty to do something about it. And 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 if I could be so bold, they almost feel as if God is speaking to their heart and saying, "I need you to stand up." and be one of the, the people who has the courage to, to lean on me and to, to say something when it needs to be said. Now, I'm not trying to uh, marginalize or otherwise you know push my friends who have no belief in God to the side, because I have a lot of friends who, who don't necessarily believe in God, who nonetheless are very much supporters and lovers of liberty. I guess what I'm suggesting here is if you feel a sense that somebody has to say something. Someone has to make the start. First of all, congratulations for for not having silenced that voice of conscience, for, for not having succumbed to the indifference that unfortunately has taken hold among a lot of the population. I don't think this is a hopeless cause. I don't think this is, you know, tilting at windmills or anything. But then again, I'm coming at this from the standpoint of I'm a person who believes, and I mean on a very personal level, I believe with a surety that uh, that liberty is something of which God approves. 
as in I believe it is one of the greatest gifts that he has ever given us. But it's not the kind of gift that you just get to hang on to if you don't uh, if you don't qualify and respect that gift. If you don't qualify for it by living as free people should live. All right, we'll pick up here in just the other side of these messages. This is the Brian Hyde Show. This is the Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Our sponsors of the Brian Hyde Show include Landmark Risk Management and Insurance. And this would be my friend Steve Burgess, who is a remarkable human being in and of his in and of himself. He is he is truly one of the people who I see working to make the world a better place. And if you are someone who has commercial insurance or you have commercial insurance requirements, you may have some questions. If that's the case, I don't care if you live in my home state of Utah or elsewhere, I would encourage you to reach out to my friend Steve at Landmark Risk Management and Insurance. The contact information is found in the sponsor links located in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. And tell Steve thanks for being a sponsor of this show. Let him know his message is reaching your ears. Well, with the political class and their entrenched bureaucracies working overtime right now to consolidate more power over all of us, the topic of secession is one worth discussing. Now, that's going to cause a few people to kind of, can you talk about that? And the answer is yes, <laughs> you can. Ryan McMacken, who is uh, one of the more principled uh, commentators for the Mises uh, Institute at Mises.org, M-I-S-E-S.org, has a great article published earlier today on LewRockwell.com. No, the Chinese won't invade America if secessionists succeed. I'm just going to hit a couple of high points because there's another piece I want to get to from Paul Craig Roberts as well. Ryan McMacken says when political secession starts to become more of a realistic policy goal and less of a theoretical ideal for the future, that is precisely when we can expect opposition to become the most dismayed and panicky. For now, critics are careful to make it appear that they regard the idea with mere dismissive contempt. (laughs) The angry threats and predictions of doom from critics of secession will come later. And he says in that case... Opponents will present many different reasons why secession must never be contemplated. Advocates of separation will be called traitors and unpatriotic. They'll be told that secession will bring poverty. Indeed, we've heard this in the controversy, or some of this in the controversy, over Scottish secession in recent years. But he says much of the debate will also focus on foreign policy. In Scotland, for instance, some foreign policy hawks sternly warned that the Scottish that Scottish independence would lead to nuclear disarmament of the UK. Now, the implication, of course, is that the UK would then be unable to defend itself from foreign enemies. And we'd hear much about the same thing, much of the same thing in the US in the face of a growing secession movement. We'd hear repeatedly about how any weakening of the American regime through secession would be, as Andrew Longman put it at the conservative magazine American Thinker, a gift to the Chinese communists and would soon lead to the conquest of North America by China. Now, Ryan McMacken points out Longman's article is borderline hysterical, but he's really just ahead of the curve. We'll hear something very similar from the regime and its allies on a regular basis as secession becomes more mainstream. 
But how plausible is this? He says, to address the issue, we can look at it in a couple of ways. First, we can examine the likely defensive capabilities of the new American states were the current USA to fracture along blue-red lines. Moreover, given that any successor states to the U.S. will share a common language and similar foreign policy needs, we'll need to look at how nations of similar backgrounds interact with each other. His point is, as we shall see, the claim that decentralization of the U.S. regime through secession would leave it a sitting duck for a foreign power is not very convincing. So what if the red and blue states split up? China certainly isn't the only country that matters as far as American international relations are concerned. But it is likely to be held up as the great boogeyman and the reason for why secessionists must must never be allowed to succeed. So let's compare China with the status quo USA. As a single unit, the U.S. economy can support an enormous military machine. All combined, according to the World Bank, the U.S. produces a gross national product of approximately $21.4 trillion. This is compared to China's $23.4 trillion GDP. In both cases, that's an enormous amount of production. But perhaps more telling is the GDP per capita in each country. China's per capita GDP is only $16,800, while the United States is nearly quadruple that, $63,000. But here's the rub for China. The U.S. produces its gargantuan GDP with only 328 million people. China, meanwhile, requires more than 1.3 billion to produce a similar output. This means on a per-person basis, rather, the American economy is far more productive than China's. Interesting thought. So how would things look if the United States broke up into smaller pieces? Now, there's a lot of different scenarios, of course, but Ryan McMacken says, just as one of many potential thought experiments, let's assume the U.S. devolves into two new countries, just two. Blue States of America, BSA, and Red States of America, RSA. And he breaks down 27 red states, 23 blue states. And by the way, they shake out pretty much as, as you would expect. <laughs> the, the blue states are the blue ones and the red ones are the red ones. He says, as American leftists are often happy to point out, blue America, at least in the aggregate, is richer than red America. Now, this is largely due to the presence of a large number of big, productive cities in the blue states. As a result, Blue States of America contains most of the USA's $21 trillion GDP. That would be about $12.3 trillion. The BSA contains 170 million residents for an overall per capita uh, GDP of 73000 In the RSA, the Red States of America, these numbers are smaller. In the 27 states, total GDP is $8.9 trillion, spread out over a population of $158 million. The GDP per capita is 56000 In terms of economic power, both of those new countries remain near the top of the heap. The BSA, of course, Blue States of America, has a per capita GDP among the highest in the world, right behind Ireland and ahead of Switzerland. Total GDP for the BSA is only behind the European Union and China and larger than those of India, Japan, and Germany. In the red states of America, the per capita GDP puts it well within the company of wealthy nations. At 56,000, it's right between Austria and the Netherlands. Total GDP, although behind that of the blue states of America, is about equal to India's and remains larger than those of Japan, Germany, and all the rest. Now, he says, we've been assuming 
so far in this separation that these post-secession states in North America would each have to face China independently in case of a clash. But he says that's not a good assumption. In fact, it's not at all a given that these independent states would shun the idea of mutual defense. In fact, experience suggests the opposite. That's apparent even to those who are not exactly entrenched advocates for secession. Bottom line is, he says, if one is going to claim that two nations with similar backgrounds are bound to go to war, you'd have to explain why Canada has been at peace with the United States for 205 years. Now, conceivably, one might claim this is only because Canada was too small to challenge the U.S., but that ignores the fact that Canadian foreign policy was set by Britain, a world power and peer of the U.S. until 1931. Yet in all those years after the War of 1812, during which the British states shared both extensive land and maritime borders with the U.S. through British Canadian domains, London was apparently uninterested in war with the U.S., However, he says, we're expected to believe that if the United States were to break into smaller independent states, the blue states of America will welcome a Chinese invasion of Tampa Bay just to stick it to the red states. Now, that may seem plausible to more paranoid anti-China cold warriors who seem to believe every left-of-center American is an agent of Beijing. But he says the Tampa Bay scenario is about as likely as Canada asking the People's Liberation Army to invade Boston. Excellent article there from Ryan McMacken. And uh, I would say, you know, look, whatever your thoughts are on secession, for some people this is just simply a non-starter. Take a look at what he has to say. File it away for a future point in time because I predict this is something that we're, we're likely to see come up. I think it's going to be a topic of discussion and, you know, you may agree or disagree, but might as well be prepared. Okay, final thought. Only got about a minute left. I'm including an article from Paul Craig Roberts about the media destroyed America. And in particular, he's talking about the narrative of a, of a white supremacist insurrection. That is the phrase that has been repeated over and over and over again. I mean, for crying out loud, they're going to try to impeach a man who is no longer president <laughs> based on this, uh, you know, insurrection. Well... This is just a call to to own your own worldview. The fact that you were listening to a program like this one where wrong think is not only encouraged but actually reveled in indicates that you're willing to think outside the box and you're not willing to simply be spoon-fed whatever, you know, some blow-dried spinmeister has been paid to to tell you. Just be aware. The big lie is being used to big advantage right now. You ought to check out the article from Paul Craig Roberts. Agree or disagree, he's got some pretty good points, and this is from, you know, the eyes of someone who's been on the inside for a long time. This is The Brian Hyde Show.